The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. President Trump's vow to clean up Washington and run America like a business is proving difficult. China's ambitious Silk Road infrastructure project is a risky gamble, and Ford plans to cut jobs. These are the topics we'll be tackling in this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and later in the show, I will be joined by my colleague and co-host, Anthony Curry. But first, we're turning to Washington to discuss a proxy report, if you will, on the progress of America's first CEO president. Joining me on the line from our D.C. newsroom is our intrepid and very busy columnist, Gina Chan. (laughs) Gina, welcome back to The Views Room. Thanks for having me. So Donald Trump won the election in part because of his so-called talent as a corporate executive. Um, But this past week has shown that there there are a ton of stumbling blocks, including possibly giving away classified information, uh, possibly trying to tell a a former FBI director to lay off an investigation before firing him. All sorts of problems are cropping up here. Um, You've kind of been looking at this issue, how like President Trump running the country as a business, it's not quite working out so well so far. Yeah, and I think one of the main points is that the company he ran was essentially a family business. was privately held. He didn't have to deal with, you know, quarterly earnings calls with analysts and and shareholders. Um, He didn't have to deal with annual meetings with investors. So there wasn't a lot of scrutiny he had to deal with and, and frankly, no one he really had to answer to. I mean, the only time he really had to deal with outsiders um, outside of his business deals was during his four bankruptcies when he did have to deal with creditors. But other than that, it's pretty much been a, a one-man show with uh, his family members and longtime loyal associates involved. Yeah, and we don't even know exactly like how he did running those businesses either. I mean, there, there's not a lot of clarity, like how well those businesses, you know, I mean, again, I mean, he's, he's been through four bankruptcies, so you can kind of, I guess, get some sort of idea that it wasn't all great. But, you know, and again, he doesn't have his tax returns. There's a lot of it doesn't have to answer to anybody, basically. No, and no filings to the SEC, you know, at least in the same vein that a public company would. So, yeah, a lot of mystery there. So how does this work? I mean, like, if, if we're going to make this analogy and extend it out towards, say, Congress, <laughs> so Congress, and you, you sort of do this in your column, Congress essentially should be acting like an independent board um, in terms of, okay, you have the CEO, he's made some mistakes, some of them quite big. Like, what does a board do? And, you know, what at this point do you think, like, how does it work for Congress now? I mean, if this is kind of how he's positioning the the presidency. Well, you've seen at public companies when there is a crisis, they usually commission some sort of independent investigation, and that's usually uh, run by the independent directors, the the people they hire to investigate the issue, report to them to ensure, um, you know, there isn't any influence by others. And we've seen that happen in countless cases, you know, more most recently in the Wells Fargo fake account scandal um, with Valiant and questions surrounding their pricing practices. 
and uh, with Barclays and uh, various issues they've had to deal with, including possible manipulation of the LIBOR market. So this is sort of a, a typical response from public companies. The equivalent in Congress would be to vote on legislation to set up or call for some sort of um, independent prosecutor or commission, uh, which actually has yet to happen, uh, even with all of the things that we see coming out of the White House, and which seems to actually be uh, never ending. So, so Congress, in some ways, is like a supine board, more or less. Yeah, exactly. And it is run by a Republican majority. So it is a party allied with Congress. And we've seen in the past with in the public company world where boards are entrenched and sort of chummy with management and, and slow to act, which, you know, you could sort of equate to the situation we're facing now. But as some of these allegations grow more serious, especially with the most recent one of, of asking former FBI director James Comey to sort of end an investigation into the former um, national security advisor who was fired in, in February, I should say, resigned. You know, it, it's starting to get to a point where I think the Republicans will have to start looking at that more closely. The news flow, it's, it's been relentless, I mean, since the beginning of the year, but this week just seems like it's on hyperdrive now and that every day there is some new revelation that's coming out that, frankly, is more and more alarming. You know, at what point do you think, okay, maybe Congress does or doesn't act, maybe they don't appoint an independent, you know, investigator? Where do you think, kind of down the road and looking at 2018 elections, how does this play out kind of, again, using company as a proxy for this? Yeah, well, uh, polls are showing that uh, the general public is getting more frustrated with all of these headlines um, and are just starting to see the investigation into Russia and Trump's ties uh, or possible ties as a, a priority, even actually um, outranking, repealing and replacing Obamacare, which had been, you know, the Republican sort of main goal with Trump in office. So uh, as uh, those calls heat up, a lot of Republicans in the Senate and all of the uh, congressmen and women in the House face elections in 2018. And that's really where the shareholders of the country, uh, which are the American voters, if you will, um, will get to actually voice their opinions on how they think uh, the country is doing. Okay, Gina, we'll be looking forward to that topic. Thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. China wants to build a new Silk Road. Just this week, the country pledged to provide $124 billion of the $1 trillion or so it reckons is needed to improve infrastructure and trade links between Asia, Africa, Europe and beyond. It's part of a broader soft power push by China and represents yet another spending commitment from Communist Party leaders in Beijing determined to manage the shift from a developing to a developed economy. Joining us to explain how these latest plans for the ancient trade route fit into China's bigger goals is our Asia editor, Pete Sweeney. Hi, Pete. Thanks for coming on again. Uh, my pleasure. This commitment this week stemmed from a conference over the weekend, which had some commitment from other countries. But really, it's China leading this. What's, what's the goal behind this, this Silk Road proposal they're coming up with? 
Well, a lot of people are confused about that, and it's China's fault because China has said the Silk Road is pretty much everything. One official said it would help accelerate the Middle East peace process. You know, it, it'll do everything. Um, so the scope of it is extremely wide, but at its core, it's an infrastructure development plan that aspires to kind of link Chinese uh, production and Chinese markets uh, more firmly with Central Asia, with Europe, with Africa, and Southeast Asia through a network of roads, railroads, uh, sea routes, ports, and so on and so forth. Um, some compare it to China's Marshall Plan, and it's not exactly like that, but um, certainly China has hopes that it would deliver a similar benefits diplomatically and economically um, for China and link it more closely with its neighbors. Is there um, appetite for improving and increasing infrastructure and trade routes here? I mean, is there enough business that can go through here or is it more of a we'll build it and it'll come? The infrastructure deficit in Asia is huge. Right. You know, varying estimates go between 18 trillion to 26 trillion U.S. dollars um, needed by 2030. You know, traveling through the poor countries in Central Asia, the Philippines, uh, you see, you know, rickety roads, you see poor power infrastructure, weak networking. You know, all these things are drags on economic development, as China knows well. So the logic is that China, you know, having built out its own infrastructure um, extremely quickly, you know, and having this massive industrial capacity to do so that is kind of like idling, well, not exactly idling, but, you know, over capacity, they can deploy that overseas and help you know, countries like Kyrgyzstan or the Philippines or Vietnam, um, you know, upgrade their, their networks and, and become more closely linked with China and with the rest of the world. And the $124 billion they're pledging, um, that's a fair whack. I mean, this, this is an economy with, what, 11 trillion GDP, give or take. So this is a pretty big commitment from China over a long period of time, but it also has so many other things it wants to do from improving education, bringing millions of its own citizens out of poverty. The, the air and water needs need a great deal of work to be to, to get up to, to proper standards. How does this all fit together? And that's a great question because the interesting thing here is that is that China is, as you said, still a developing country. You know, the government has a plan to bring 70 million people out of poverty by 2020. That kind of gives you an idea. And by poverty, that's, that's people living below like a dollar a day, I think. You know, the middle class in China is, has much less money than middle classes in other countries. It's, it's, it's a country that still has massive internal challenges. Um, so the idea that it would step up and start playing this global leadership role and distributing largesse to its neighbors, you know, including investments in some very hairy areas, you know, building roads through Pakistan, um, you know, Central Asia, states that are not the most stable. The question is, like, is this a bit premature? Is, is China, you know, grandstanding and kind of getting carried away with stature at the expense of its own economic problems, which are still significant. So where do we see this going then from a soft power perspective? We've seen President Xi's been was out uh, at Davos earlier this year talking up the benefits of, of battling climate change, just as President Trump here in the U.S. appears to be thinking about pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. So China suddenly is taking on what seems to be a very different role for the rest of the world as they look at it and think, this is not the China we grew up with and know. I mean, how can they, are they having any luck changing people's perceptions or, or do people think this, this is more just China in it for its own game and just talking the right language? Well, for one thing, China's soft power push has been running for a long time and the Belt Road Initiative is, is just the latest iteration of it. I mean, Chinese state media, propaganda mechanisms are overseas. There's these Confucius Institute initiatives um, which put, uh, you know, Chinese state money into educational institutions around the world. That's a lot of money. In the past, most of that has not paid off that well, at least measurably, you know, because Chinese propaganda is kind of clunky, honestly. 
But here's this chance for China to really step in. And that was given to them by Trump, honestly. You know, the way he's kind of withdrawn, or at least signaled that he's going to become with, withdraw from, you know, his kind of activist American role, or at least become a much more transactional president that his allies can no longer count on him. Um, and this is just this golden opportunity for China to step up and play play the responsible leader, stakeholder. In theory, that could be a good thing. I mean, that's exactly what the West, uh, Europe, and, and the United States have been asking China to do, uh, to become bound by the same set of rules, you know, and play this positive role in the region. Um, to that end, China has its own development bank that's going to be plowing, conducting some of these funds, you know, and is making all the right noises about trade. But, I mean, the problem here is that China's behavior up to this point has not been supporting those institutions has in fact been free riding on them or sabotaging. China runs a huge trade surplus, especially with the West. Its economic policies have been criticized for being extremely protectionist and aggressive. Um, along with One Belt, One Road, it has this Made in China 2025 plan you know, that proposes to basically replace you know, a lot of foreign imports and at the same time produce Chinese companies that would compete more. So it looks more like an indigenization program that makes people very nervous. So there's mixed messages, definitely. And what about internally? Does it play well internally? I mean, you, you were talking earlier about the, the country wanting to lift 70 million of, of its own people out of poverty. Is this particular initiative going to help, or is it going to is it going to sort of land Chinese citizens and taxpayers with just a lot more debt? Well, I mean, that's a great question because, honestly, I mean, a lot of Chinese people are are still very much focused on their own interests. The idea of becoming, you know, national, uh, international charitable lender doesn't sit comfortably with a lot of Chinese citizens who think, you know, Beijing could kind of concentrate on the problems at home. So this might be good for China's stature, but, you know, they've seen, you know, some of these projects, these, these loans go bad. I mean, Venezuela owes China $65 billion dollars. You know, there's a lot of investments in these areas that will never produce commercial returns. You know, it's fair enough that, you know, while the absolute sums that are being contemplated of like, you know, maybe $150 billion a year, you know, are not, you know, massive by Chinese standards, citizens might still resent this if Beijing is seen as dropping the ball on other domestic reforms, like, you know, as you point out, health care. Um, where they're trying to increase hospital beds by 30%, this very imbalanced education system that has Chinese students having to travel overseas to get good educations, um, and then obviously the environmental challenges, massive water supply program problems, um, you know, all these things are big challenges. So there's no reason China can't do both of them, but it does have to take care of its own house as well, or the risk is, of course, that people will blame you know, this distracting overseas projects of building highways in dangerous areas as siphoning attention away from, from domestic concerns. OK, Pete Sweeney, thanks for coming on. It's been been great to chat to you and, and, and learn how the Silk Road is is allegedly coming back to life. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Ford is taunting President Donald Trump with its latest announcement of plans to cut 10% of its workforce. OK, so Anthony... This does not seem like a very good idea since Donald Trump has been basically calling out GM and other car manufacturers, trying to keep the factories here in the U.S. What is going on? Yeah, it is a bit of a strange thing to do, isn't it, if you're a car company, considering that right before his inauguration in January, Donald Trump was 
having a go at General Motors, like you said. Toyota came in for for some um, Twitter bullying as well. And Ford had been on his radar while while on the campaign trail, talking about a, a factory they're going to open in Mexico. So basically, I mean, what's what's happening now? I think is that companies are, are now more used to the you know the, the social media effect of Donald Trump's presidency. Now we may They've well been beaten into well, actually, no. I, I think it's the opposite. I I think they're realizing that there's a, a a limited lifespan for these tweets, in part because he's been coming up with so many others that right. have nothing to do with business. Where Ford is at the moment is in a, a bit of a tricky position. Its stock has lost more than a third of value since Mark Fields took over as chief executive almost three years ago. Okay, and, and why is that? Why is its stock down? And it, that's in relation to GM and, and well, I mean, G- GM and others have gone up. So, I mean, one of the reasons that, that there's a disparity is, is in part because GM and Fiat Chrysler were playing catch up. Those two, of course, both or Chrysler, at least the Chrysler part of, of Fiat Chrysler, both went bankrupt during the, the financial crisis. Both had to do a lot of restructuring and both took a lot longer to come out and deal with other issues that they had. Um, Ford had started before the crisis, didn't have to go into into bankruptcy and was much further ahead and was enjoying far better results than its two Detroit rivals were for quite some time. So its stock raced ahead while the others were languishing. Now, a 30% cut sounds pretty bad. And I think that's why we're seeing this talk of cutting 10% of salaried workers. Um, but it is part of a, a broader plan that Ford came up with earlier in the year to cut $3 billion of costs. Now, cutting costs, is, is, it's not particularly exciting. But it, it is a good thing, though, for car companies to do, especially when you have a potential downturn in its most profitable market, the United States, starting. So, I mean, if this was 10 years ago, we'd be saying, thank God that Ford's finally doing something. But, of course, the problem now is you've got Trump as president who now thinks it's his job to cherry-pick which industries should do well and to have a go at industries that aren't. And I think Ford has made the calculus, rightly so, that shareholders are far more important uh, than a tweet-storming Trump. So I, I want to go back to another point, though. You said that a downturn is coming or you foresee something with the American car market turning, well, at right? The, at the moment, I don't think it's particularly... There's anything bad really coming like we saw 10 years ago, anything like that necessarily. All we're seeing at the moment is slowing car sales from a pretty high number. We're at 17 million vehicle sales a year or more in the U.S. at the moment. And that was that I think last year was a record. The year before was a record as well. So we're coming off pretty good times and pretty good margins as well for the, for, for the car industry, in large part because I think... Um, You've seen an uptick in people buying SUVs, which have a lot more profitability in them for the car companies. Um, so I don't think it's getting very bad suddenly, but I think we are seeing a downturn, which may just be growth slows. It may be that maybe we have a million or two more cars, uh, fewer cars being sold each year, and that's fine. These car companies, don't forget, when they restructured um, during and after the crisis, did so so that they would be able to be at least marginally profitable if car sales fell to 10 million a year for the industry. Okay, so so where is Ford on some future initiatives like autonomous driving, some of the other things that you know we we saw yeah. earlier this week, Google investing in Lyft? Um, yeah, I mean that's I think that's one of the things that, that has dragged the stock down. I think there's a general perception that Ford was behind. I think Toyota is probably further ahead, in part because uh, you know certainly on electric vehicles it was further ahead with with the Prius. Some of the car makers in Germany have a lot more money to spend and uh, don't have to worry about various different types of cars like Mercedes is basically a luxury car maker, um, so has a bit more uh, leeway. Um, and even GM over here, I mean, you might not credit GM with, with too much given what happened to it during the crisis, even though it's rebuilt itself quite nicely. But it does have a connected car business that has been around for a long time, even before we thought of 
connected cars and it's doing relatively well it might not be the, the the best technology in some people's minds other people think it's great so you know ford unfortunately hasn't had any of that it's its main initiative over the past decade was uh, a hookup with microsoft called sync which had, went through some fits and starts and that was just about you know getting your car to play your music properly uh, and a few other things so but ford has since been investing a lot under mark fields in fact about four billion or so in the past year on various different ventures so it's getting there but i think that's part of the problem it has been playing a bit of catch-up with some of its rivals and then there's the likes of fiat chrysler which kind of sort of isn't i wouldn't say isn't bothering completely but they basically outsource the autonomous uh, car business in some respects to Google stroke Waymo, Waymo being the, the, the Google offshoot. Um, they're just handing cars over to uh, Waymo uh, to fit as being autonomous, uh, some of their minivans. And they're not spending as much time as some of the others are saying, we're going to join all these various ventures. Ford is now all over the place. Um, so I think it's it's getting there. Of course, no one knows what the future is going to look like on this and how long it's going to take. But I think that, that they finally got there. The issue now is to say, now here, we've got enough investments, probably, we'll probably do some more, um, but we're looking at a cost structure and thinking, okay, we hear you guys, we see the share price down, we know you're worried, but um, we're not that worried. But hey, look, we've probably got a bit of fat that we can cut, and that's why they're looking at some salaried workers. So not a bad thing, basically. Well, I mean, it is if you were. I mean, there. of course, um, I don't want to. I don't want to say. Yeah, this, and I, I think if, if I mean, and, and it, they actually use really bad terminology now that now that. Oh uh, yeah, they're butchering the yeah. language. Yeah. People efficiency actions. People efficiency actions. Isn't that just lovely? Yeah. What a what a way to to, to really make I'm people, people feel wanted. I'm going to people efficient you right out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The other thing about Ford is even after it's dropped 30% or so over the past couple of years, it still is actually the, um, let's leave Tesla aside, Tesla is is an anomaly, more than an anomaly, but of the big three automakers in this country, um, Ford still trades at a higher multiple to earnings compared to um, Fiat and Chrysler. Now, none of them trade at great price earnings multiples at all. They all trade way below what you think would be just be a steady state, let alone growing. But, you know, Ford is still regarded by the market, just looking at that metric, as the best of the three car makers. Okay, Anthony, thanks for that insight. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Gina Chan, Pete Sweeney, and my co-host, Anthony Curry. Thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopday and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And do share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another episode of the Views Room. Thanks for joining us.